Welcome back to No Challenges Remaining. It's been a while since we've talked to you, but we're happy to be doing so again. Uh, my name is Ben Rothenberg, and joining me as always, fresh off a transatlantic, transcontinental flight from Italy back to the native Bay Area, please welcome Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. How are you? Buongiorno. Ciao, 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 ciao. You really sound Italian right now. Yeah, no, I know. I have like a mouthful of spaghetti and everything. Got at least three quarters into a bottle of red wine. Nice. Um, Rome, Rome really touches my soul, Ben. I can see, I can hear you gesturing over over the Skype. Oh yeah, grand, grand hand gestures. You know, I no longer adhere stringently and stridently to rules. Mm-hmm. I find rules to just be a starting point for negotiation. I, I think maybe maybe we can take the most inopportune time possible, say, like, next Sunday, to go on strike. You know, because why not? Absolutely. That's, why not? That's, that's what they do. I'm sure the weather will be nice. That's a good enough reason as any. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No, but uh, but Rome was great. It was a, a lovely week and a half, I guess, I was there. So, um, But I, I am happy to be home. And uh, I, I can't say that I'm ready for the French Open. I don't know about you, Ben, but heck, it's coming whether we're ready for it or not. It really is. It's kind of a, it's, I think it's the most daunting slam to cover, I think, in some ways, because you know the matches are going to last forever, and it starts, at least for me, at a really early hour. Actually, it starts everywhere. It's 10 a.m. start there or so. Mm-hmm. 10 or 11. It's early, that's what I'm saying, and it doesn't stop. And the way the schedule is paced in the second week, it's sort of all... I don't know. It just makes it harder, but I think we're hopefully up to it. We'll see. I think so. I'll, I'll get some some pallets of Red Bull and mm-hmm. you know, kind of ha- stock my house full of like hacker food. That would be good. <laughs> um, let's see. Is there anything um, in Italy that you most remember from this trip, tennis or non-tennis? That I will most remember from the trip. <laughs> I mean, there's there's quite a bit. I mean, a lot of it was what was quite nice was like late at night was just wandering Rome mm-hmm. uh, by myself. Uh, unfortunately, the Rome tournament has night sessions, yeah. which I really I mean, there was all this talk towards the end of the tournament by the president of the, the Italian Federation that they wanted to make the, the, the Rome tournament 96 player draws, which would obviously require them to extend the length of the tournament, which is never going to happen because there's Madrid. Basically, it was a bunch of baloney. There's no way. <laughs> That that's ever going to happen. And they call it Bologna there. Bologna, exactly. It was a bunch of Bologna. Um, but uh, uh, one thing that I remember one of the Italian journalists telling me, um, and she was like a political journalist. She was just there covering it because it was an event. Uh, but she was like, what they should do is eliminate the night sessions and add like three or four more days. And that way, you know, there's enough courts and the women don't get, you know, second, you know, um, shafted um, and all this sort of stuff. But uh, but anyway, so there are night sessions. They end up going really late. It's always an adventure for me to get home. So usually I would just like hop on a bus and just have it drop me off somewhere towards the center of Rome and then attempt to navigate my way home. So those were quite nice. I, I actually don't really love Rome during the day. It's a little too crowded and loud and a bit overwhelming. Uh, but I do really, really love it at night. It's just like really peaceful and uh, the streets are empty and you can walk along the river. It's quite nice. You're, like, so, you're surrounded by the ghosts of antiquity or something 
Exactly. No, I really, I, I mean, it sounds so cheesy to say it, but that, that's really what I do love about Rome is like you're just kind of walking on these bridges and past these artifacts and, and buildings and, and whatnot that are, you know, older than this country that are by orders of magnitude um, and kind of a, a tribute to kind of human intelligence and design and what people could even think uh, was possible, you know, thousands of years ago. It's, it's all really, really humbling. And as a horribly arrogant person, I need that every once in a while, even if it's just once a year. I feel, I feel the same way about Mason, Ohio. I really do. Oh, yeah. Exactly. I mean, you know, some of those cans of Skyline Chili have existed for like 50, <laughs> 70 years. And they will be there for thousands of years. Whatever, whatever <laughs> yeah, race that... comes to this planet next, we'll find, you know, a few cockroaches and a program for the Western Southern Open resting on top. Exactly. A pyramid of Skyline Chili. <laughs> So, on the tennis front, a bunch of stuff has happened in the last few weeks. The last time we did a show, which we didn't get around to posting for a while, but the last time we did it was right after Monte Carlo. So, we have some stuff happening in Stuttgart, stuff happening in Madrid, stuff happening in Rome. How do you want to attack this? Well, here, let me ask you this question, Ben. Okay. Madrid seemed like, at least this was kind of, I was thinking about this the other day, felt like a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that had to do with the fact that there was all the obviously chatter about the blue clay and the complaints and, and who was playing and who wasn't and who might have been injured and who wasn't, things like that. Then, obviously, Roger Federer ends up winning Madrid in, in rather spectacular fashion, yep. I thought, uh, throughout the week. Uh, Rafa and Novak tumble out. Andy Murray skips it. Serena wins. Sharapova, she destroys the field, absolutely destroys it. Um, and then we have Rome. And then Rome, it seems like everything, like the ship was righted, right? Like Rafa goes and, and doesn't drop, drop a set, wins, beats Novak on the way. Novak beats Fed, which is kind of what we would expect. Serena makes the semifinals and withdraws, but she looks all right. Maria ends up winning. Lena has a thing. I mean, it, it was almost like the results made more sense I think they Rome. Com- so my question yeah. to you, Okay, so my question to you is... How much stock do we put into Madrid going into the French Open? Have you have you seen the movie Clue? You know, you know I have. have all those alternate things. I, okay, mm-hmm. it sort of felt like these two weeks sort of felt like that. Like there's one way where things go where it's like, oh, fast, you know, fast aggressive play prevails. Serena and Federer, hooray! And then second ending is like everything you expected. You know, not that Maria Sharapova on clay mm-hmm. has become expected yet, even though it still happens. I still kind of am surprised every time she wins a match on clay, honestly. Even though I know she's, you know, kind of like one of the highest clay winning percentages out there in her career, and uh, obviously has made, you know, bat defending champion who won two in a row in Rome. Now that's impressive. But I don't know. It just felt like mm-hmm. these are at the final ending of this movie in Paris will be somewhere in between. So I think you're still gonna have those bobblehead balls that go really fast to help somebody like Lena win the title in the first place and help Federer beat Djokovic last year. Um, but then you're also going to have, obviously, the slower conditions and the best of five, which will favor the Nadals of the world. I don't know. I think, I think the truth lies somewhere in between is basically what I'm saying. I don't think you can completely ignore Madrid, but even though it probably is tempting to because it was blue and because, you know, Nadal lost to Verdasco, which just doesn't happen. So right. I don't know. I think it was an interesting sort of mental test for people. And I think that Serena definitely did very well in that, which is no surprise, and... Nadal and Djokovic really didn't, and if things get, the crowds at Paris can provide, you know, obstacles that obviously Nadal has never had any problems with in his career, but Djokovic 
perhaps has with losses to people like Meltzer. So I don't know. I don't know. I think I'm sort of rambling on here, but I don't think that either one is going to be an exact carbon copy of what we'll get in Paris. Fair point. Okay. So what, what did you think? I mean, I think that. What, what did you think of all the basic uh, hullabaloo over the blue clay? Since we haven't really talked about it at all. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't have a problem with the color. I mean, I don't think that there's anyone who could argue that it, the color in and of itself did what it's supposed to do, which is that you could see the ball so much better on television. So I don't have a problem with the color and this whole notion of, oh, red clay is the only clay that should be used in the European clay court season. Um, that statement in and of itself, like that very traditionalist statement, and I think that's probably Rafa's stance, um, I'm a little bit more inclined to dismiss. Mm-hmm. But I did have problems with the blue K because it did play so differently. And because it was, at the end of the day, it hit an entirely different surface. And while I don't have a problem with experimenting with different surfaces, and I like variety of, of surface speed, mm-hmm. um, you know, and stuff like that, I don't think that you should be playing with it as the players are trying to ramp up for a grand slam. So in other words, if you want to go and toy around with Indian Wells or Miami Shang- or Shanghai... Yeah, you know, like, or the Middle East tournaments or the clay swing down in um, um, South America. You want to play with with the surfaces and figure, you know, make it your own little factory or or chemistry lab? Absolutely. But you can't be doing that when players are relying on your tournament to be one that helps them prepare for what is the second slam of the year. And so I definitely sided with the players uh, on that. Um, And that was the problem. And, and, uh, yeah, so that was kind of my take on it. I, I didn't really have as much of a problem with, like, uh, oh, they didn't consult with us, and, oh, they ignored what we wanted, yeah. and, oh, it's blue. I just had more of a problem with that stuff. They said they told they seem to have told the players, or the ATP and WTA, look, it plays the exact same way, and the ATP and WTA was, like, convinced, and then when it came down to it, it didn't, and that's a problem. I think basically, like, you sort of started you got at was the problem wasn't the color at all it was just like really bad court maintenance where they mm-hmm. and obviously i'm not a clay court you know landscaper scientist but they flat they shocker flat, that's I, I, thought, I thought that was one bullet job. point missing from my linkedin page um they <laughs> like sort of i don't know rolled it too much and made it too flat and then the other clay didn't have enough time to really sink in so it got slippery and hard i mean so i think the color will wind up getting scapegoated and odds are you won't see the blue again, but you could still have a clay court tournament in Madrid that has crappy courts that are red, doing all those same things. Which is how it used to be anyway. The yeah, exactly. courts in Madrid have always sucked, and you combine that with altitude, and it's just always been a really wonky place to play, to get ready. So I guess I'm kind of undercutting my argument a little bit insofar as like Madrid's always just been weird, and that's just the players have always dealt with it, and maybe, you know, they just didn't deal with it this time. But... You know, save your money. It apparently costs them so much money to like experiment with this blue clay. Save it and make good courts. What I thought was sort of, I don't, enti- yeah, I don't entirely agree with what you were saying about um, having to replicate the conditions for the upcoming slam, especially when there's you know four weeks out. I think like someone like Strasbourg, a tournament like that, or like Nice, has a real obligation to try to really simulate conditions if it's the week before. That far enough out, I think people can adjust to different altitude or whatever. No, but see here, my my argument with to that though is that it's a mandatory tournament. Again, like if Strasbourg wants to go and put in purple clay that has clumps in it, they're more than welcome to because nobody, anybody who wants to skip it can skip it. 
but your force majority is mandatory for both the men and the women. It's a high stakes tournament, and it's an advance and a ramp up to the French Open. I think that in those circumstances, when the players do not have an op- a choice as to whether to play there or not, you do have to involve the players a little bit more. You do have to cede to their desires and their wish. And what Sharapova said in, in Madrid was that she wanted there to be more consistency just because it's a preparation issue. Um, not because it was like a thing across the board where like all courts should be similar, but it's like, you know, I'm sitting here trying to chase a career achievement and I got to go play in like this weird you know, Disneyland for a week and yeah. have a choice to skip it. No, I sympathize with that, but I also sort of come down for some reason on the side of the organizers for these tournaments. Basically, they're independent. I mean, Madrid, I don't think it's beholden to Roland Garros conditions. They're their own freestanding thing and they can sort of do what they want. It's maybe not, I understand why it's tougher on the players, but at the same time, I just say, no, suck it up, deal with it. You're professionals. You have weeks to prepare for this in advance. And if you're not going to, you know, if you're going to stumble at the Madrid hurdle like Nadal or Djokovic did this year, then you'll be able to recover, as they clearly already have. I don't think Madrid ruined anybody's clay court preparations for the French. I don't think, you can. I don't think there's any evidence of that yet, anyway. Yeah, that's probably true. Anyway, so that's the blue. People were feeling... People. Well, what do you think about just the general sort of tone of the complaining that we got from players who essentially were losing because i mean federer and serena both won and didn't have anything bad to say about it which <laughs> yeah. is not a coincidence right what do you think about sort of how that whining has been sort of spun or complaining i guess it's probably a nicer verb than whining yeah That's i mean whining. at the end of the day i kind of feel like there was initially a f- at least the way that i seem to at least track the the complaining is that initially, and this means like even months in advance of, of when the announcement was initially made that, that they would be going with this blue play, that the reaction was a, was almost entirely negative. And then for whatever reason, as that negativity snowballed, and nobody was saying anything different, everybody was just saying the same thing and it became this cacophony of criticism, then obviously, as is human nature, there's backlash. And then all of a sudden, like I, there were writers that I was reading their stuff and I'd be like, wait a second, two months ago you said this was an, an abomination of, like, you know, tradition and clay and blah, blah, blah. And now you're saying, whoa, these players are whining too much? I don't really know. So then I went back and, like, you know, read a lot of that. So people were kind of flip-flopping on it. I mean, were the players a little bit too um, aggressive about the complaints? Possibly. I mean, I don't know if, if I'm if I'm Rafa or Novak that I'm threatening to boycott the tournament a year in advance. I think that's probably a, a conversation I could probably have with Tyriac directly. Yeah. And not that it has to be aired out into the media and you know. But at the same time, like I totally understand like where that frustration comes from. So, but I do think that it was interesting that that like both the the men, the players were ignored, the women, the WTA was ignored in terms of like not wanting the blue clay and like Madrid went forward with it anyway. And mm-hmm. it did seem like the men were like way more whiny about it than the there girls. There was a sort of sense of entitlement to it. This sort of, I don't know, after hearing them complain about it day after day after day, and I'm mostly talking about uh, Djokovic and Nadal, I was just sort of like, you know, get over it. We get, yeah. you don't like, you've already thrown your tantrum, you know, just let it be. I understand. I mean, just, you know, I don't, this whole notion that sort of has come to, um, dominate uh, ATP discussions about what reform should be all seem to 
make it sound like the three big three, not even Murray, just Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer should get to make all the decisions about what happens on tour. And like they have, you know, responsibility or they need to be listened to. And I sort of think it's more, it should be more of a democracy than that. I think that what, I don't know, Sergei Stokowski thinks about Madrid service should matter as much as what Djokovic thinks. And I think the sort of soapboxing he did there, I don't know, it just sort of, it just got grating after a while, I thought. It did, but I mean, you've been in those press conferences before, though, Ben, when, when you know, certain, you know, these sorts of things, like, come up, like, example, for example, like, the um, press conferences in Australia about um, the player meetings and, mm-hmm. you know, the ATP politics and stuff like that. I mean, at the end of the day, these players, it's not like these players are, like, stepping up there and grabbing the mic and, and right. engaging. They're answering the- questions that are asked. Exactly. They're answering questions that are asked. And so in that way, sometimes I'm a little bit, you know, I definitely see a lot of times, like, fans really come raining down on the players, like, you know, why do they keep talking about it? It's like they're talking about it because they're being asked. Mm-hmm. Like, we're the ones, we, the collective tennis media, are the ones that keep, like, asking them about it. And they do have to keep answering. And, and you know, even when Rafa's like, I don't want to talk about this more anymore, the next question's about the same thing. And then he's like, you know. It's, he a, comes, it's a lose-lose for them. And they get criticized really if, they, if they don't say anything about it. And they get criticized if they, you know, do. Mm-hmm. So, it's tough. Yep. I, I sympathize with that, but. I, I do think that some sort of handled, handled it more. Well, yeah, there there probably did come a point where it was done. Like, no. you know, there came a point, like, when when you're into your third press conference, you can mm-hmm. probably just leave it be. Yeah. Which is, I think, what happened with a lot of the women. I mean, they all got asked about it early. They all, you know, in their pre-tournament press conferences, they all kind of set forth the tone of how they were going to answer the question. And most of them were just kind of like, it is what it is. I don't really like it. But what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. Um, and then they didn't really have to get asked about it after that. But then again, the women are, are not as high profile as the men. The men were going to get drilled on it no matter what. That's fair. Although somebody like Serena could have made a big stink and would have been listened to. Oh, she could have. I mean, Maria could have. But, um, you know, they said their thing and they moved on. Yeah. And the press did too with, with respect to them. And maybe it's because the story wasn't with them. The story was with the men. Right. So the takeaway, I think, from all this is that the women are not weenies. Correct. Life. Yeah. Life. Life. <laughs> Life is so great. It's the best. So then after Madrid, the tennis train rolled along to Rome, where you got on at that station. And yep. like we said, revert sort of, revert, uh, results sort of flipped. A bit, and yeah. Other than that, no real surprises. Nice to see Lena come out of her coma, results-wise, and look like you know somebody who won a Grand Slam last twelve months. Agreed. And Sharapova continues to do big things, but I think everyone still thinks that Serena has her number until proven otherwise, which doesn't look close to happening. So, yep. what do you what do you think that how did Rome change things? Did Rome just sort of reassured us what we already knew, or did Rome introduce new thoughts to us? I think Rome reassured us of what we already knew. I think that, that at the end of the day, I mean, first of all, obviously Serena played well. She got a couple of, like, red court matches under her belt, or red clay mass- matches under her belt, which is what she needed because the two wins that she had were on the wonky surfaces. So they were in Madrid, and they were on the, the green clay in, in Charleston. Don't, don't forget her star turn in the Ukraine, that's correct. That's correct. How could I forget? 
so yeah, so you know, she got a couple matches, and then she mentally. I mean, it was. It, I just feel bad because at this point, like every single time I talk to her, like she knows what question is coming, and I'm always asking her about her mental state, mm-hmm. and to the point where it's become kind of a joke. Like you know, I let everybody ask their questions, and I you know raise my hand, and I'm like you know nah, like. Another bit of a mental lapse there. And she just kind of looks at me with kind of this knowing smile. She's like, yeah, it just keeps happening and I can't through. But yeah, I mean, I think on both the the men and the women's side, it really didn't prove anything new, I guess. Um, Especially not on the men's side. I mean, right. Or Djokovic in all final, you know, this is not shocking. Right. I mean, the biggest thing that we learned coming out of it was just how much... Victoria Azarenka really gets under Maria Sharapova's skin. <laughs> like, Can you elaborate on that a little really, bit more, It was shocking. Um, gosh, how do we even attempt to paint this picture to recap what's gone on? Um, obviously, um, you know, Azarenka is, is, has had uh, Sharapova's number on the court um, all year. And decisively. Too. Decisively and, and really exuberantly mm-hmm. <laughs> had her number in the way that she celebrates after beating Maria. I think, I think I showed you, I had some story that I wrote about the Wendy and Wells final that used the word strut and it described like, it has rank a celebration or general yep. demeanor. And then it got used for like some vocab lesson by some other place. It's like, here's what the word strut means. And it was this sentence about as rank of being like after winning. that I thought was sort of an yep. interesting takeaway for that. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely. So obviously that all happens. So then they meet in the finals of uh, Stuttgart. Stuttgart. And Maria just really handles her quite easily. They bump shoulders on a changeover that if you do a Zapruder-like analysis of the film, it's pretty clear that Sharapova was not pleased about that. Mm-hmm. She kind of shakes. You can see her as she walks by. She, like, shakes her ponytail. That, that the, the bump should never have happened. And then Maria, in the post-match interview, throws a bit of shade Azarenka's way. And says, oh, you know, it, it's just really because she's injured. She was so injured. She was so injured. Dripping with sarcasm, clearly referring to the fact that Azarenka called a medical timeout for her wrist, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, I kind of, you know, it was funny, but I, could, I just kind of filed it away. I didn't think about it much again. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to Rome. And um, Azarenka plays her sex. She had a first round bye. She gets a she plays a, a Shahar pair in the second round in a night match, um, and the way that t- and it's a second night match. And the way that typically it kind of goes is as the night match is going, you know, people will come around the press center and say, "Do you want this person if they win?" Right. It's close to midnight. It's people close want to, go to midnight, off. right? You know, are you really writing something that you need to talk to this person? So I'm like, no, I'm I'm not writing about the match. You know, I'm not writing Victoria's rank of beats Shahar pair, so I don't need quotes from her. And it's and also, yeah. you know that you know that Azarenka will be around all week. Exactly. I can get my questions at another time when she's in a better mood. I don't want to, you know, pull her out, you know, at midnight and force her to talk to me and then be annoyed and keep everybody there as well. It's a bit kind of a good faith, you know, gesture. Mm-hmm. So it's like, no, no, no. So anyways, Azarenka rolls over Shahar Baird. 6-1, I think. Super happy in the, post, in the post-match uh, on-court on interview. She's kind of dancing, big smile, whatever. I leave. Walking home, and there's a te- and their Twitter blows up. Oh, Azarenka's withdrawn from Rome, citing a right shoulder injury. Wow. Okay, that's clear. I mean, obviously, I mean, before there was even anything. I think I had tweeted. I said so. Basically, Vika played one match so as to 
not have to withdraw to get a point penalty. And then she won her one match and she's going to pack it up and leave, which is Mm -hmm. fine. I was like, you know, I was like, that's fine. You know, people do that all the time. So anyways, so next day, or it was two days later, I guess, and then Azarenka ends up tweeting that, in fact, she did play Rome just to avoid being zero-pointed, getting a zero-point penalty on her on her uh, ranking. Um, and she kind of blasts the WTA rules and says, like, hopefully in the future there will be more protection for players or something, which is a bit much. So uh, Sharapova gets asked about it in her press conference a couple days later. And again, she is asked. She doesn't bring it up herself. Right. She doesn't bring it up herself. Somebody and somebody had asked her very explicitly because I think I had asked her initially, just more of a vague question about scheduling. Um, mm-hmm. She's one of the players that really plays kind of the minimum number of tournaments and doesn't really go out of her way to overplay. So I asked her about that, and she nope, nope, no Porteros from Maria. Right, right, no Porteros from Maria, and she's you know explained that as it the I think the last question finally a, a foreign reporter, French maybe. Asked her, you know, Victoria Azarenka tweeted this and said that the only reason she played was to avoid the, being penalized. And Maria kind of looked at him, and she's kind of like, uh huh. And she like kind of leans forward to the microphone, <laughs> and literally these are the first words out of her mouth. First of all, <laughs> she had like a three part answer for this question, and I don't think that she knew that about like the tweets. I, I don't think that the WTA had prepped her on it. But basically, she had a three-part answer. The first part was, first of all, you know, Azarenka is, like, one of the most injured players on tour. And she pulls out a tournament. Then you see her practicing two days later. So it's really hard to gauge where what her health is like at any given moment. So that was, like, A. (laughs) And then B. She And then she moved on to talk about how, you know, for me personally, I I never put anything before my body. And if that means that you know, I get zero points or I have to skip a tournament, then I'm going to do it because my body is the most important thing and I would just never make a decision like that. And then C, the last point was, and this came out of nowhere, she was just like, there's nothing wrong with the WTA roadmap. It's great. Um, It's so much better than it used to be. And sometimes as a top player, you know, to protect your body, you have to pay not to play. And that's what's good for the sport. And, um... Yeah, and like it was like literally like mic drop. Everybody's like, okay. <laughs> and uh, but she just kind of really went out of her way to kind of call Azarenka out. And, and normally in those situations, when you, especially on the WTA, when you ask one player about another player, they kind of sidestep the question. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, you well, know, they but, don't so but, much anymore. In 2012, that has changed a bit. But yeah, in general, in general WTA or any in, in ATP too. I mean. Players aren't going to take opportunities to, you know, take batting practice on one another. And that's sort of what's been different for Sharapova in 2012, is that she really has, with Azarenka especially, but also a little bit with Kavanska, um, she has, you know, embraced opportunities to be bitchy, I yeah. guess, for lack of another word. And it's, I mean, it's what the WTA was, you know, part of, a small part of what made it WTA so popular in the late 90s and early part of the last decade is this willingness to have these great players who have to play each other all the time because they're winning and meeting more and more and developing real rivalries on and off the court. So I think all the WTA might not be happy for the criticism. And they're never going to publish a press release being like, stars, claws out, you know, you know, yeah. great stuff. But I think it is good for WTA buzz and personality growth. I, think, I mean, the great thing about it, and I think that one of the big reasons why it's so great for the tour 
from a marketing perspective is that these aren't tiny no name players who are sniping at each other. If this was just Azarenka and Redvanska doing their whole thing, <laughs> an entirely separate, you know, strand of the of the story. If it was just those two sniping at each other, it wouldn't really be that big of a deal. If anything, it would feel a bit more juvenile um, because yeah. you know, they used to be friends, and you know, it's just really kind of yeah, juvenile and, and trivial what their what their disagreement is. With Sharapova, though, she kind of adds a little bit of the veteran kind of like, hey, kid, like you haven't earned it yet kind mm-hmm. of thing and, and, and elevates it to be something that, I don't know, is kind of fun and more substantive in the critique. Because, again, this isn't like a weird swipe about personality or something like that. Like Sharapova went out of her way to like substantively criticize like basically call Vika like an injury faker mm-hmm. and tell and basically say not only that, like I, Maria Sharapova, am not. I would never mm-hmm. this way. And I would never. I would never. And then last but not least, I am the one defending the WTA. And I'm the one that's saying like, you know, and, and Serena had her back on this. Like they both were saying like the roadmap's great. And it kind of on that day when both of them were making those comments, which is a bit different than what their comments were when the roadmap initially came out. Um, initially, Serena was still critical of it, but now they're kind of used to it and, and they like it. Um, and they found their own ways to work to make it work for them. Yeah. Serena will not always go to, you know, I don't know, Beijing or something. Right. She'll, she'll, take, she'll pay not to play, as Sherry Bubba said. And they sort of have the experience and career maturity to know how to do that comfortable with it and also both of them have you know swagger scheduling like we talked about where they're not going to feel obliged to chase points and i don't know if azarenka has you know gotten a grip on that yet which is fair because she hasn't been at the top of the game yeah nearly either of them Absolutely. i i just kind of feel like so from the comments that both maria and serena made this past week it really kind of at least for me just kind of um established like a clear divide between the veterans and the kids, where, like, the kids, you know, the, the young generation, Generation Caro, as some people like to call it, mm-hmm. you know, it kind of has that air of entitlement, that sense of entitlement, and that sense of, like, well, things should be the way that we want it to be. And first of all, I have no idea how bad it used to be. Like, we had to work so hard to get it to this. And mm-hmm. you are reaping the benefits of all of the changes of WTA Roadmap has you know, that the changes that we worked for and, and now allow, which is increased prize money, which is, I mean, Azarenka's made, what, $7 million this year? Something, yeah. Already? Um, you know, you don't get to kind of take that money and then point to the system and say, yeah, it's, it's really screwed up that I had to play this mandatory permit because those commitments are what drive prize money. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I don't know. I, I found the whole thing completely fascinating. It was just it was just fun. It's just fun to have players, you know. It's it's just especially for Sharapova because Sharapova has never really let anybody else get under her skin before, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, she had plenty of times where there were opportunities if she wanted to that she could have like started some sort of, you know, spat with Serena or something back in 0405 when they were that one really was at the dominant rivalry of the game and it was actually close. Or um I don't know, other people no, it's coming to mind right now. Yep. Ivanovich, if she wanted yeah. to, just you know, but she just never took the bait before because there was no reason to, and she just didn't feel as personally bothered. But like with the bump, you can tell that just Sharapova just does not like Victoria Azarenka 
at all. Yep. And, you know, they sh- there's no reason for them to. I mean, they're, you know, not co-workers as so much as they are competitors. And, it uh, does bother, I bet you it bothers Maria so much that because of, like, all the shrieking debate, she gets lumped into other I know. category, like, as though, like, the same. And, I mean, if I'm, like, I could just see with Maria just being, just seething. Mm-hmm. Just being, like, how dare she? How dare they? Like, yeah, every headline, like Sharapova and Azarenka together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was interesting. I mean, I, I found it. I, I mean, I loved it. It was, it was so funny, and I couldn't believe that she was saying what she was saying as she was saying it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, it's like she started. I was like, oh, 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 <laughs> oh! It was great. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, oh, oh. That's, that's all you really want. That's worth a flight to Italy right there. It really was. It really was. I didn't want to say that that was my most memorable moment in Italy because, you know, it's Rome and whatever. But it was, at least tennis-wise, that might have been my most memorable moment. Tastier than any pasta right there. WTA drama. We obviously don't have... We are recording this on Thursday, um, the day before the draws come out, just after the uh, second Eurovision semifinal, which was... How did you feel about the results, Ben, of Eurovision semifinal number two? This is um, mostly okay. I was really happy that Lithuania made it, mm-hmm. the blindfold guy, mm-hmm. um, because I, I love that song and I love everything about that performance because it's so thoroughly literal and ridiculous, which is what Eurovision should be all about. And he also had, had really the odds for him, like the betting odds or just like fan votes for predictions for making the final. Like he was at like 10%. Like no one thought he was getting in. And so he did, and that made me happy. Um, there were way too many Balkan ballads in this semifinal, so the ones I wasn't good at predicting which ones of those would get through, but it doesn't really make a difference to me either way. And yeah, I was happy. I think that yeah, the Swedish girl was the favorite going in, but she really needs to learn to enunciate. Yeah. And she when she was back when she was in performing in Sweden, I think she's just gotten so sick of the song she in the did. last like five months that she's had to perform it over and over and over that you know that is such a good read on that because i was watching the performance today and i was like you look so bored like yeah. kind of through the motions and kind of like doing that singing where where you're kind of singing to yourself like yeah you know what i mean like as you're walking through and you're just kind of you know every time she just mumbles along new words to the verses and you know just and screams like you are like at the top of her lungs and just moves on you know, someone should teach her the words of her own song again. Think of the Netherlands' controversial entry. Um, the story behind that, allegedly, is that, like, um, for those of you who didn't see it, first of all, shame on you. Second of all, <laughs> ben is the, the, the Dutch singer was wearing this, like, enormous Native American headdress thing. And she says it was based on, like, back when she was a kid and she had this friend who she, like, played cowboys and Indians with. And the song was about him or something. Although, I mean, you could use a little more context there. She used the, my best friend is Indian, like, my best friend is an Indian, Native American. That's, that's Sort of. Barely. I mean, she said, our best friend, me and my best friend used to play Cowboys. <laughs> my best friend, who's also Dutch. Yeah. She and I used to play Cowboys and Indians. And, and her, her, I, her I, performance I, in the national final had, like, all of her backup people were all, like, women dressed in, like, Pocahontas garb, like, banging drums and stuff. So that's been toned down a little bit, but she's still out there on her headdress. I don't know. She didn't make the final though, so <laughs> yeah. You're... It's good to I've, have you. Do you see Russia this year? Have you seen Russia? I haven't seen Russia. Oh, oh, you need to go see Russia. I will. I will catch up. In case oh. you guys don't know, Ben has done these like little recap, historical recap 
I guess, posts mm-hmm. on Broad Street Hockey that we'll link to because you need to read them because, first of all, they're so, so educational about the history of Eurovision because there are many songs that I'd never seen or heard before, thankfully, but then also, <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and then Ben's write-ups are just hilarious. I was just cracking up all, all afternoon. Eurovision, it's my muse. I mean, you know. Oh, I know it's, it's your muse, Ben. Good to have a good to have a break from it. If yeah. so, if only there was a Eurovision circuit, I could travel <laughs> to you know Australia and Wimbledon to cover. Not Azer, not Baku, Azerbaijan. No, no. I was thinking like I would like to go to Eurovision. I've never been. I would love to go sometime, but Baku is not going to be the place that I would you know schlep to to do it. Yeah. Um. So hopefully somewhere appealing wins this year. Yes. Like, I could go to you know I could go to Sweden. I could go to Norway. I could go to, uh, I think Russia's my favorite at this point to win it all. Really? Um, but I don't, I wouldn't go to Russia either. So we'll see. Interesting. I've, hopefully Eurovision's not going anywhere. So I'll have plenty of years to take that thing off my bucket list. No kidding. My favorite joke that I saw tweeted was um, asking for everyone to vote for Greece so that they would win and throw a <laughs> party and Germany would have to fit the bill. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, that would, that would probably happen. There have been times in the past where countries have declined the right to host mm-hmm. as a financial reasons, like happened back in the seventies with like Luxembourg or something, some tiny country that won and it like won two times in a row and was like, okay, we can't do this again. Um, and so like the UK happily Eurovision. stepped in. And yeah. This them. Is what makes Eurovision so fascinating yeah. is like all of these little, like, you know, in addition to the music, which I I'm using air quotes <laughs> um, and the performances, double air quotes, um, <laughs> Yeah, just all of the, 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 you know, the European politics and all that sort of stuff that goes into it. It's, fan- it's fantastic. You'll see more of that on Saturday when you actually can see, like, who is voting for who. Exactly. You'll see all that line up very well. At some point, you'll have, to, you'll have to splice in a choice Eurovision track. Oh, yeah. I still, well, like, really, when I think about it, I'm like, I can't believe we didn't make Balkan Girls our theme song. <laughs> we can for this week. We'll make, we can, or we'll play as an outro this episode. There you go, okay. So yeah, so where were we? Um, French Open. Fr- oh, yeah, yeah, French Open tennis. Yeah. That's where we were. Yeah. So what's gonna happen, Courtney? I don't know, Ben. Can I can I confess something? Sure. I kind of think the French Open's gonna be boring. Really? Like like Nadal? Yeah. Nadal Djokovic final boring. A little bit. A little bit. I mean, I obviously like I I find. What I do like about Rafa's kind of clay streak, I guess, because as I've said a gazillion times, I don't like dominance. I don't generally like streaks, all that sort of stuff. I like unpredictability. But what I generally liked about Rafa's clay court dominance is that I actually do enjoy watching him accomplish it. Yeah. Like, I like watching him win those matches. And I, and I do think that maybe I just buy into the Rafa, what Rafa says, but that he genuinely believes that he can lose any single match. Um, yeah, I stopped believing him on that a while ago. Yeah, I know. Because he doesn't. A lot the of evidence people, is just not there that he actually can. Yeah, a lot of people don't believe him, but I actually kind of do just from a, I just, I get his psyche, or at least I think I get his psyche on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has to be that way. He can't go in there. That's what he, I mean, like it says in his book or all this stuff he got from Uncle Tony. I mean, it's all part of his, you know, philosophy that's helped him be so successful is a sort of uh, humility even to the point of there's no reason why you should be humble because you're so so good but it's what keeps him you know 
so hungry or so motivated, I guess. Do you think, though, I mean, I kind of actually, I, I totally agree with that, but do you think that, like, my personal read on, like, Roger and Novak in particular has always been that those two actually need the swagger? Where, where Rafa actually does need that kind of fear of failure a little bit to kind of motivate himself through the matches and to be really super focused and whatever. I almost feel like the fear of failure doesn't help Novak and Roger. Like, they need actually a little bit more of that, like, chest puffed out, like, I can't lose. That's um, probably true. I think it's probably more true for Djokovic than Federer. I think it's also probably true for Murray. Yeah, I think, I it's, think that's Murray, right. like, Murray needs to have some sort of strut. He needs to be hitting shots where he's flexing afterwards to really be, you know, at his best. Yeah. And it's like, he needs to be hitting those ridiculous uh, between the legs things where he, like, steps around the ball for no reason. That's when you know Murray's firing on all Yeah, that's when, he's, that's when he's just not thinking. He's fluid. And and it's a little, you know, show-offy, which is good because that shows confidence and yeah. belief. Yeah. But anyway, sorry. Which can't wavering. Anyway. Yeah, so, okay, so if those are the lack of surprises on the men's side, we know what that looks like. What does no surprise look like on the women's side? I think that it is going to come down to Serena and Maria and Victoria. And obviously we don't have the draw yet, so we don't know in what order that will happen. Yeah. Um, we could have I, a Serena-Vika uh, quarterfinal, I think. We could. Yeah. We could. That, I think, would be intriguing. I, I, I yeah, I mean, I, I just, I want to see those a bit, so... Um, Serena's win over Vika, which is, I think, their first uh, head-to-head meeting since the U.S. Open last year, if I if my memory serves me. Um, because she pulled out a Fed Cup when they were supposed to play this. Right. She, 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 she dodged it. Um, so that was, like, their first meeting. And, and I mean, yeah, I want, I want a no-excuses match. I want no-excuses, red clay, none of this, I'm, I'm kind of injured, none of this, oh, the surface is too quick, like, whatever I want, like, no asterisks, one match. I would love to see that. I would love to. It, see- says, it says a lot about Serena that she can play a no asterisk match, match on play now. That's yeah. no longer her asterisk. So. Yeah. Who do you see as an as as like an outside pick? Um, to win it all, or just to do big things? To win it all. To win it all. That's a good question. I think the draw can break for a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. I think the draw can break for Ramonska. I think the draw, it would take more breaking because she cannot beat any of the aforementioned three people. <laughs> Very true. But that could happen. She could avoid all three of them. Uh-huh. Um, I think could break Lina. Although I, know, I think Lina could break her own draw. There's nobody I think she can't beat. Mm-hmm. She could um, break it for good and bad. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and not to really win the whole thing, but I could definitely see Angelique Kerber like, making a semi or maybe even a final depending on her draw because she's just been really, really impressive in these last... Uh, eight months out of nowhere. Yep. So, for my picks. Yep. How about you? Uh, yeah. We don't have the draws. So we're just making stuff up. Well, obviously, this will all change. It, it, it it's. I feel like um, the French Open more so than any any time. Like the draw is so important, especially for the women. But um, yeah, I would say I would say Lina. I forgot Stoser. I forgot Stoser. Yeah, yeah. I I would say Lina. I think I think Sam. Um, if the draw breaks for her. Um, and she doesn't get too many flat hitters that are that'll dulco her. Um, <laughs> but, she, but, she, but, but I think she has a better chance on clay against the flat people. I think Sosa outlasting Sharapova on clay the way that great Sukart match happened. That's not impossible. No, that's very true. And and Sam has played well on clay. I mean, she she has. I mean, she didn't get like you know the big results or like whatever. But she's played well. And and, I, and that that Stuttgart match against Sharapova really could have gone either way. 
and that could have been a, a bit of a, a season changer for her if she if she pockets that match. I have Saparova tapped as kind of not somebody who can win it all, but but somebody who can pull, uh, who could do some damage in the first week and and, and bust up some brackets. I saw a lot of her in Charleston. She was impressive. Yeah, yeah, and I think she's moving well. And uh, she withdrew from Madrid, I think, with um, some sort of injury. So and then she went to go play Prague. So hopefully she's physically okay. But assuming that she's physically okay, I think that she could do some damage. Anna Ivanovich, I think it's yeah. a draw dependent one. I think too. Yes. Like she can, if she gets people ranked below her, I think she can routinely take them out. She's, I don't see. I don't know how many upsets she can pull off. It's so weird to think that she's finally back to being at a spot where she's winning the matches you expect her to win. She's actually kind of dependable. Yeah. To get to quarterfinals now. Oh, uh, I don't know about quarter. She hasn't been to a quarter since she won. The no, French. not not Grand Slam, but I mean in 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 tour, tour level tournaments, she's okay. Pretty reliable to get to round of sixteen quarterfinals, so that's quite good. No, I think she's absolutely, totally not a surprise to make the second week. Yeah. And depending on her draw, the course. But can she beat anybody we've already mentioned? I don't know. Okay. I almost. I mean, excluding Safarova. I mean, I don't know that. I don't know that I trust Anna yet. I haven't seen her play. Actually, I don't think I've seen her play during the clay season yet. Mm. Um, but I don't trust her to beat Sharapova or Azarenka or Serena. She or had Lina. her chances against Sharapova. She had like five gazillion break points. And she was up like three love and then she was up four one. And she just kept mentally choking. But but the game is there. Like, the you know, when she's playing well, it's there. But yeah, so those would be kind of mine. What about you for guys? If not Rafa, and if not Novak, and if not Fed, who? Oh, that's, I mean, now we're talking like less than 5% chance of the field winning. Correct. Um, what is, who's left? Burdich. I'll go with Burdich. I think Burdich has looked really solid this season, this clay season. That's my pick, too. Look at us. Great minds. Or, you know, we could be wrong. Yeah. I'll go with Burdich. I think Burdich, um... British is just one of those guys who would, like, would have won a slam in another era. Yeah. And so many people fit in that category. I think we sort of forget how Davidenko, for sure. Um, Murray, for sure. Uh, Ferrer is kind of borderline, but he could definitely win a French in another era without, uh, you know, it all hanging around. Even a Monfils, I think. Monfils, I think, still, I still think that obviously he's out of this year's tournament. I think it's the game to sort of explode. Songa. I mean, there's just a lot of people, and I think I'm, I know I'm just naming the rest of the top ten. <laughs> but I legitimately believe if things were in the ATP the way they were in the '90s and early 2000s, then you know, there'd be a lot more people. I mean, it's just ridiculous how selfish the top three are. No it's really, it's really kind of rude. It's rude. It's yeah. absolutely rude. What was that line from like Bull Durham about ground balls versus strikeouts? Don't you know? Don't whatever. Like strikeouts are fascist. <laughs> yeah. Ball, at least it's it's more democratic. It's like that sometimes. Indeed. It's like domination is just it's just who wants it? Who wants dick? It's just, been, it's just been going on for so long. Is the thing. Yeah. Like that's. I mean, there have been times where, uh, you could say, I don't know, or like this year, like Azarenka had like a stretch where she seemed unbeatable, and really, like no one could figure out how to beat her at all. Yeah. Obviously, Serena didn't get to play her, but uh, she was really dominating. It was like, wow, this is tough, but like. ATP, it's been that kind of oligarchy for since 2004, pretty much, and that's that's a long time. That's like over a generation in tennis terms. So. I just find it always difficult because I look at it and I, I mean, I understand intellectually why it's been like the greatest era. I mean, this eight years has been 
you know, has yielded just phenomenal matches, intense rivalries. Um, I think a lot of why it's that way also is because the tennis is really watchable. Right. I mean, because Federer, you know, plays a very elegant game in his way, and it all plays such an amazing, you know, an awe-striking physical game, and Djokovic is kind of in between, yeah. and, um, and that's good. It's not like Sampras or whoever was before, where, you know, yeah. I think that it came after that era of Sampras Ivanisevic, when I was, you know, personally fairly down on men's tennis. Um, I think that's also helped them. Yeah, no, that's true. I do wonder, though, if, if we keep getting these finals the way that Novak and Rafa play them, if that sentiment changes. That these six-hour grinding, grueling epics are actually not very fun to watch. Yeah, I, I on the fun-to-watch side, I was watching a bunch of Nadal in Rome, and I couldn't help, like, start looking at my watch between points Mm -hmm. and it really does take forever like after the shortest points too yeah you start like actually looking at like okay that point was nothing hard at all Mm -hmm. and all especially i think it's developed even more sort of a mary pierce type pre-point routine where he's like you know really tucking the hair behind his ears now and there's more ticks to it i don't know i think people might start to turn on that but at the same time it's so impressive what he does during the points that i think people can overlook it yeah and if they use the entire gap between points to um, show replays of spectacular thing he just did, and you know, that's fine. But I do think that there needs to be something different there. It, I mean, novelty will wear off from six hour matches. No, yeah, no, yeah, exactly. That is, I personally didn't find that final, especially now having that, uh, you know, time away from it. Like at the time, obviously, you're watching it, you're like, oh my gosh, what are we watching, and what's going to happen, and everything which is great but it's not going to be a match that i've ever thought for a second to go back to yeah because it was such a chore in a lot of ways a few shots that i remember from that match whereas like you know obviously the wimbledon 08 final or um even you know some of their their the the novak andy murray match i thought was a better match at the australian open well, that comes down to also a lot of people. Yeah, that, that Murray-Novak match was good. And that also had more sort of uh, drama in the scoreline, I guess. Yeah. I mean, because there was also, with how many times Djokovic had beaten uh, Nadal, there was this feeling, at least I had a feeling of ev- inevitability, like until Nadal was up a break in the fifth set, I never thought Nadal was going to win. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and obviously that did happen, being up a break in the fifth. But, uh, I don't know. We'll see. I think that... Um, Tennis can use. Some, I think men's tennis could use a new, a new spark, a new somebody. Burdich, I don't know if it's complaints that I see issue. This comes up quite a bit when you talk about Isner, um, when you talk about Raonic, uh, when you talk about Del Potro, or even some of the younger guys. Like when you go all the way back and you talk about like Harrison or something, and people are like, "How could you possibly?" You know, a month and a half ago, it was Isner for Roland Garros final four, yeah. right? And and now it doesn't really look that way. And you know my. You know, I definitely understand the criticism, but a lot of it is a, sim- a symptom of wanting so desperately to see something new. Yeah, and as people, as people who have to write about tennis, you know, for a living, mm-hmm. um, I mean, we're happy to write the same Djokovic and all story, but it all gets a bit copy pasted at a certain yeah. point. And you know, I think fans have to feel that way too. Yeah. I mean, are there? I mean, maybe not people who are obviously diehard no Djokovic at all, Federer thing. But, I mean, I think there is a need for infusion of stuff because at some point they're all going to leave. 
And it's going to happen in women's tennis, too, with the Williams sisters, eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, and there will need to be somebody there worthy of taking the throne. And there needs to be sort of an overlap period. Right. A transition. Time. There needs to be a transition day of, to have a, you know, good regime change. Yep. So, will that happen? I don't know. Completely random thought. Um, you know who we didn't mention at all in our little prognostications? Who did we not mention at all? Petra. <laughs> <laughs> Explain well, that reason. No, I mean, I, what's what's your reason? I think we could have given her passing mention. I think she deserves to be in the same sentence as a Kerber. But, uh, mm. do you? No? No, I don't. And, uh, and I mean, I and I, I love Petra. I mean, when Petra's playing well, I love watching her play. I still think if I were to have to put money on one of the, the, the next generation girls um, to be kind of the future of the WTA, I still put my money on her. Um, you, you know, even before Wozniacki or Azarenka or Advanska, I think she's fantastic. But um, injury-wise, I'm just not convinced that she's 100% fit for, for the French. Um, I think if she's smart about it, she needs to kind of save herself for Wimbledon and for the grass. And so the Olympics, she yeah. can be Olympic grass. Oh yeah, hugely. But she but she does need to heal, and she's just been struggling a lot with like illness and injury this year. Air, I think, in the clay. But um, who knows? You know, I mean, you and I both know that kid. She can go and blitz through seven straight matches and not drop a set, and you know, go nuts. But I I just don't see it given the fitness issue. If she was a hundred percent fit and given the exact same results as she's already had, I would totally put her into the category of like. Yeah, she could win the French Open, but I just don't think that she is. So that's why I kind of don't really talk to her, talk about her about much. That makes that all makes sense. Yeah. Um, someone else who we didn't talk about who is oh, more can I of a, give a little shout out to like my totally crazy stat that she's never given a walkover, retired from a match ever in her please career. Please do. I just think that that's incredible because she, in my head she's somebody who is illness or injury because of her asthma and like whatever. So I just kind of assumed that at some point she would have like pulled out of a match or pulled out of a tournament after it all restarted. I mean, she withdraws from tournaments before mm-hmm. they start, but she's never once she starts, she she plays. I found that's that pretty, pretty impressive. That's pretty admirable. Right? Yeah, that really is. And there are other players who have similar. Well, does anyone know that? Um, that's a good question, actually. I know Federer. I don't think has ever retired from a match. I want to say he's pulled out mid-tournament. He's given walkovers. Yeah, more recently, but even not even though it's not very many. Right, it's either one retirement in his entire career or none. But it's like, yeah, something like that. Fed has it's a ridiculous record like that. Although um, with him, you get a sense more that it's just like he is sort of immune from injury because of the way he played yeah. freakishly. His freakish athleticism. Oh, and also, I mean, I think one thing you'd like to take into consideration between Fed and Kvitova is that they have games where if they're injured, they can still keep throwing punches. Yeah. You know. And maybe the ball goes out, they can have the tools to do that. It, and that was one of the things that worried me about Kvitova against Kerber was that she um, seemed to uh, had injured her ab muscle. And she was, like, spinning serves in at, like, 70, 80 miles an hour. Yeah, that was a tough match to watch. Yeah, but she stood out there and she gave the win. And not to criticize, but a couple rounds before, Caroline Wozniacki was down 4-6-4 to Annabelle Medina-Grigas and pulled the ripcord due to an upper respiratory illness. Totally fine within her rights. Don't know how serious it is, so totally not criticizing. But Petra stayed out there and she took her third set beating. She lost the third set six one. That's fair, and that's not that's not a very typical Wozniacki thing to do. 
in fairness to right. her. No, she's she's in a bad space psychologically. Yeah. Like just also really did not mention her in these uh, predictions or uh, reviews. The next slam, she's not even a top eight seed. That's pretty amazing. And I was and I was I tweeted something before, like when it looked like she was going to lose number one. It looked like she was going to lose number one to Kvitova. Is what it looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, actually, Wozniacki is a lot of front-loaded points here. She could actually be out of the top eight by the French. That was mostly just, you know, extreme mathematics example. Mm-hmm. But outside of the semi in Miami, she has not, or I guess a quarter in Australia, too, where she didn't really have to do much. Mm-hmm. Outside of that one marquee win over Serena in Miami, there's been a whole lot of nothing for Caroline. And, you know, I kind of feel like she has to hit rock bottom before she can get back up. I mean, emotionally, you know, I mean, I've I've seen her in the the you know the play area and, and just kind of see her go through the motions on the practice court and stuff and um i don't know it's 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 hard to feel sorry for like a 22 year old multimillionaire 21 year old multimillionaire but i do i mean i do i i think that she's not in a, a spot where she has maybe as much you know support as she probably needs like right now i think rory's great i think he's, he's yeah. being great but uh but yeah Tough. It is tough. Although I have seen people, and this is, I don't think this comparison is particularly fair, so I'm just sort of looking for you to shoot it down, but if you disagree, feel free. Sure. A lot of people point the decline in her results to exactly when she started dating Rory. Yeah, I know. Possibly. You know, I mean, there's no evidence to say you can't, I mean, you can't make that connection, but... That's not what I see from her when I see her, you know, like you said, around tournaments, sort of seeming not her old self. Yeah. I don't get the sense that that's what's causing it, but yeah, lifestyle change, I guess. I don't know. Right. And I think that part of it is also, I mean, once they started dating, wasn't that also around the same time that, you know, Sharapova had really got her feet back under her. Serena comes back. Kvitova surges. All right. But that's, that's like, the fair way to look at things. Not yeah. The you know, tabloid narrative way to look at yeah, things. Yeah. No, I, I think they're, I mean, and even, and even if they're maybe even, Man, I'd rather her be happy with her boyfriend than like miserable on a tennis. Um, it's not. It's not a narrative that I would really at- attack or attack. I would on. never. I would never write an open letter to Caroline Wozniacki, being like, <laughs> "Oh God, Caroline, you need to save yourself from you know this uh, Northern Irish. Yeah. I don't know what the male term just, for just, sucky, but not a public but... letter, but like a private letter. Yeah, <laughs> just, you know, text message. Yeah, Caroline, you remember me from Perth, right? Yeah. I just had some thoughts. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty much, that's sort of what we do on a daily basis anyway. I feel like we should also talk briefly, no segue here, about Brian Baker. Of course. Who, um, we were talking a little before the show about how there was so much, when he won the uh, wild card to get the into the French Open through the USDA Pro Circuit Challengers, he won, I think only, only won one of them. He got a lot of ink spilled about Brian Baker, and it was a pretty cool story that, you know, his comeback, and it was nice that he finally got a chance to, you know, participate in tennis again but now this week in nice he's actually winning matches and beating real people mm-hmm. not the realest people but you know fairly real people and people that other, people that other real people beat yes so and people that other real people lose to sometimes exactly so good for him yeah any additional thoughts on brian no i mean i think it's it's just an incredible story and um yeah, I mean, it's uh, to have that sort of level of perseverance and self-belief after seven surgeries, was it, that, yeah. uh, you know, all over his body that just kind of ravaged it and to see all those guys that he used to be able to beat, like Djokovic, Malfis, all those guys, like, you know, uh, become things 
and he's like a tennis pro at a you know club or, or assistant coach at the university and stuff like that but still believe like I'm going to still schlep all my stuff and go play these challengers and I mean it's really the mental component that's most impressive yeah I totally agree with that um, so hopefully it gets a nice draw at the French yeah or yeah. let me put this a different way hopefully it gets a nice draw or a prominent draw right I would I think it'd be a fitting thing for him to do to get to play if he could play Djokovic first round or something Mm-hmm. That's kind of cool. That's kind of cool for him. That would be super cool. On Chatrier, give the guy Chatrier, you know? Yeah. But don't give him, like, first round where he's playing on court, like, 17. And yeah, that... Don't give him, Don't give him like, first round on court four against uh, Almagro or something. Or someone who he's not going to beat. Yeah. He's not going to get any attention either. That's what you don't want. Yeah. So, we're, we're rooting for you, Ryan. Yeah. Ryan. What's, what's not to like? Um, speaking of him, obviously, we haven't... Not a huge sample set for him yet, but do you think there's any reason that Jim Courier should think about including him for the tie against Spain on clay? Yeah. He is turning into something of a clay goat. He is. He's the most successful American on clay this year. Like European red clay, anyway. Uh, sorry, I'm just like, I'm, I'm thinking through the U.S. lineup. So basically, um, the U.S. lineup is Isner seeming a lock. And yeah. then it would be Harrison was the lineup against France. Marty Fish, I can't imagine, will get the call. Right. Based on his recent health issues. Um, Roddick, I can't imagine, would be up for going there or would really be, they would really want him. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty tough. I mean, you have, I mean, Davis Cup is kind of just so special in that way and it's just such a different type of competition. I think it's basically comes, it would basically come down to Bray Baker or Harrison, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe the French Open will kind of tell a little bit but but it's hard because with baker you kind of wonder like how much is it of, of him kind of riding the wave of right. adrenaline the, the thing the... is though you can't expect harrison to beat anybody on the spanish team on clay no but and he so... is in the future because you can expect that harrison will be a member of the davis cup team for years to come right but do you think long term or do you think hey we can actually win the davis cup this year i give baker a slightly bigger chance to pull off an upset against a Almagro type in Harris. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen Baker play, so I don't know. Like, if I saw him play and actually saw him, was like... Oh. I only saw, like, five minutes of his Mothies match. Yeah, so... Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. It's a tough call. Yeah, it's good should, things are getting you should, interesting. You should put a call into your good buddy, Jimmy C. You should ask him. <laughs> I, I, I will do that. What was... I some, oh, other American tennis news is that Donald Young is awful right now. Yes. That's okay. not really news, and that hasn't really changed from the last few podcasts we've done. But two and eleven in 20, 2012, by the way. Two and eleven. That's bad. Incredible that all of his points are really just based off the U.S. Open. U.S. Open in Washington. In Washington, that's right. Which is annoying for the USTA, I think, because it makes him Olympic proof in terms of off. So he's probably going to get in. Yep. Um, which I then... is it wrong to say that that bothers me? Well, the thing is, actually, if Harrison makes the cut, they can... What, let's, let me do the math on this. So the people who are in are Isner, Roddick, uh, Young, and then Harrison could be. Mm-hmm. Okay, so all four get in, that's fine. They can send a fourth person as sort of, you know, a uh, just a throwaway person. How about, if there was a fifth, how there was a fifth person Barry in there... French Open quarterfinals and bumps, gets his ranking up. That's who? Baker? Query. Query, yeah, Query and Query, yeah, Baker would take yeah. a lot of it, but Query could. But he's he's been shooting distance if with a really miraculous run, but yeah. Query would just have such a better chance of doing something in London mm-hmm. than um, than Young. 
Young, I think, also isn't very good on grass. I don't know how much he even plays on grass. He's barely played at clay in all his career. I mean, his, his, the way his parents manage his schedule, he barely has ever even gone over for the clay circuit. Yeah. So, I don't know. We'll see. I think we could be... This is definitely a down part on the roller coaster that is Dolly Young's career. And Correct. I have no reason to think he'll turn around anytime soon. Well, and if we're going to talk about Americans in the Olympics, the women's side is shaping up to be quite... It's getting, it's getting interesting. Yeah, super, super tra- uh, traumatic and dramatic <laughs> yes. um, from the French Open, where basically it's all to play for. For Venus, uh, Varvara... Uh, Vanya. Vanya. Three Bs. That's pretty rare. Yeah. Um... And one more. And Sloan is throwing and, herself in there. Yeah, and Sloan because of her run this week. So basically all four of them are, are vying for the, the, the last two spots. Venus barring a first run ups, uh, upset um, should be fairly safe, I think. Yep. Um, Vanya is the one in trouble because she made the third round last year, so she has a lot of points coming off. But then, yeah, I don't know. I think I th- Levchenko's run in Madrid really sort of threw a wrench in the hole system. People, people, I think, were ready for Sloan to possibly come up and maybe threaten Vanya for yeah. the fourth spot. And if she did overtake her, I don't think anybody would... I don't think the U.S., you know, powers that be that want the best possible team out there... But the drama... They would, I mean, the drama doesn't really surround... The drama's all around Vanya. Yeah. Because if Vanya qualifies outright for singles, and so does Venus, then Vanya's going to want to play doubles, and she's a top ten player in doubles. But you can only send two doubles teams, and they have to be comprised of, of your kind of team, right? So it's going to be Liesl and Lisa, obviously. Yeah. And then it's going to be Serena and Venus, Venus. and Vanya's yeah. like, which is like, you know, not I, I, I don't I don't have too much problem with that because, um, I mean, I think if you get into Olympics and get to play one event, you know, that's pretty cool. Right. You played. She never she never played regularly with an American partner. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would have been kind of cool actually if she and Bethany had like tried to pair together for this year. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why that didn't happen actually. Yeah, Bethany wanted to play with Sonia, I guess. Yeah, Sonia actually, it's been really her ranking is uh, getting very <laughs> nuanced on Olympic doubles qualifying here. But Sonia is like no longer in the top ten for doubles, and Ooh. so she's not an automatic entry now. Which also means I think she can still get in somehow. I'm not exactly sure how that works. But it means that there might not be an uh, Indian mixed team. That's crazy. Pretty nuts because yeah. they have so they would be a really good country in mix mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and there's still a lot of Indian drama with Pays, Bupati, and Rohan Bopana. And Bupati and Bopana pair together to try to like sort of make an alliance to get into Olympics together. But now they've both fallen out of top ten together, and Leander Pays is like a number six. Yep. And so can get in. She can get in with help from Roddick Stepanek. Yeah. Because that's why his ranking is so high. Right. And then... And then I guess someone else to choose somebody to partner with, yeah. right? Yeah, but so, sort of the one who, you know, they all both picked against him, even though I think it's fair to say probably that Pace... I mean, Bupati had to know that Pace is a better partner than Bopana. Mm-hmm. He just doesn't like him at all, <laughs> personality-wise. Yeah, so, that doesn't help. You know, a lot of... A lot of a lot of intrigue on that. There's been a lot, a lot of articles in Indian press about it, um, which I've seen through Google Alerts for various things. Mm-hmm. But uh, interesting. There's a lot, just a lot, there's a lot of subplots going on. There's a lot Ursula to keep track of right now. Ursula for sure. trying to get ranking up so she can play doubles with her sister. 
that made helped a little bit because she made the quarters in Brussels this week. But I don't know, a lot of stuff, and we'll all find it'll all be something to make Paris more interesting. For sure, it might be boring in the end, which it probably for sure. Be. So there we go. All right. Last, no number this week. Yeah, so no we'll number. So we'll do numbers next time. Which is a shame, but I, I also wanted to make sure because, you know, the, the Grand Slams are a really big deal, right? I mean, yes, that's for sure. And let's not taint the results of the Grand Slam by giving two players an unlucky bu- a lucky bump. Like, that just seems really rude to the rest of the field. And, that's and fair. Playing that's with fair. the competitive now, now that you say that, I kind of do want to mess with the system. I don't feel like I'm- <laughs> I kind of want to feel like I'm controlling this thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So maybe I'll just go random.org now and see what happens. Sure, go for it. Yeah, you want to pull up? You want to pull up the? We're so punk, punk, Ben. We are. So anti-establishment. We're, we're mischievous. <laughs> we are. No, I was gonna say do one through 126, but that might not actually work. That wouldn't work exactly with qualifiers. Yeah. I can one through like 106. Okay, 106 direct entries. We're changing the rules here. Look at us. I know. Zolko's out of qualifying. She lost. Yeah, she's actually about to be out of the top 200 pretty soon. Yeah. She's been really bad quietly. Or loudly if you're paying attention to her, but no one really is. Yeah. I talked to her. I interviewed her when I was interviewing. I was writing something about Palisares. Mm-hmm. well. And I mentioned something about how she had fallen out and there were no... Uh, South American women in the top 100 for the first time in a long time. Mm-hmm. She was like, yeah, hopefully, you know, Paola Ormachea can get uh-huh. in there or something. And I was mm-hmm. like, I said to her, like, well, you can get in there, too. You're like 130. Yeah. She was like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm pretty bad. <laughs> Not those exact words, but that was the tone. It's kind of funny, but also depressing. Yeah. And it's proved accurate because she hasn't come any. She's been moving the opposite direction. Mm. One through 106? Yep. 102. <laughs> 102. We got a bonus number. Interesting. Let's see here. Right. So we got number 102, which is in our extended range. Nice that. I, I, weird I have a super weird squeal. Well, I was excited to hear have somebody I like know in the top, at number 102. Okay, let's start with yours then. This is somebody who's had a pretty rough 2012, actually. There's a lot of hype about him that started roughly in... Um, August of last year. He is from British Columbia, and his name is Vashik Pospisil. Ah, Vashi! I do like Vashi. Everyone likes him. Yeah, he's he's a very good tweeter. Like, he's he's you know just seems like a nice kid. Yeah, I thought he was younger than that for some reason, but that is young in ATV terms, I guess. It is, and and he really made a name for himself in Davis Cup. That like just beast mode weekend when he put in the entirety of Canada on his shoulders. And he has a very fun game too. He's very creative. Mm-hmm. I think football calls him Vasha Kangas. So. Mm. I like him. My yeah. I like yeah. Him a lot. So good luck, Vashik. Hope hopefully this bump helps you. I'm not uh, even sure he's the main draw, but he must be if he's at one or two. I don't know when the cutoff was actually. I didn't anyway. see. I didn't see him in qualies. So he must be in there. I assume so. Well, hopefully. Um, well, I have number one hundred and two from Taiwan. Kai Chen Chang. <laughs> oh, that's not Letitia, but it's another good one. Uh, what's her? Um, this it, one. 
normal. Uh, Letitia's name? No, her name, not Letitia. Um, wait, are you asking? You're asking what Kai Chen Chang's nickname is? Yeah. This is not Chia Jung Chuang. No. Who was the other one? Who was Letitia's partner for so long? Um, I'm not sure Kai Chen is saying this. Isn't she the per? Didn't she beat? No, that was Zhang Shui. It didn't beat Dinara Safina. That was somebody else. No, no. I don't know a whole lot about this person. No, I do not either. Um, but... I'm looking to see what her nickname was, though, because I could have said her nickname. Name. Which... Yeah, no, I don't see a nickname. Anyways, um, she has two doubles titles. Mm-hmm. One with in 2010 in Osaka with Lilia Osterlow. Oh, wow. Yeah, random, right? And then she had a doubles title this year. With Shuang Xiaozhong in Kuala Lumpur. Very nice. Yes. So I'll confess, I've seen her play um, a few times, but I don't really remember much of her. Yeah. So. Well, she is number 102. She is number 102. I like that as soon as we extend the boundaries, only by five spots, we uh, immediately got one of those numbers. It's just, it just it never fails. I wonder what would have happened if I left it at 100. Let's see. 34. Oh, who is that? Which would have been... Okay, I have the guy. <laughs> it would have been Monica Nicolescu. <laughs> <laughs> Your French Open champion, Monica Nicolescu. <laughs> that would be fun. Talk about something to write about. No, for sure. I mean, yeah, she is one of those players that, like, I could talk about for days. Yeah. I, she's just so amusing. Like, really not is. intentionally, but she just is. The guy is uh, Kevin Anderson. Okay. Uh, standard, no. Upstanding young man. Toast. Yes. He's, he's toast in a, in, a, in a slab of butter. <laughs> so there we go. Yeah. Now we're just sort of meandering through random number. Yeah. Thank you all for joining us. Enjoy the French Open. We'll talk to you sometime during it, hopefully. Agreed. Maybe not. We'll, we'll try. Our schedules will be crazy, but we'll try uh, yeah. Feel Enjoy. free to 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 um, submit questions though um, to our Twitter or through Tumblr or email. Um, if you have questions and they and we realize they start to be relevant to what's going on at Roland Garros, then that might kickstart Ben and I to jump out of our writing holes and actually pop on a proper phone call. So um, yeah, so please be sure to do that. Let us know your thoughts on Eurovision. <laughs> yes, 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 indeed. Um, and we will talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Cheers.